welcome to the Borderlines Podcast, a podcast created by me, Stephen Murins, Peter Edelman, and Deanna Okanachoff. We are three immigration lawyers in Vancouver. We've created this podcast to provide commentary on immigration law and policy. This episode is an introductory podcast in which the three of us will discuss numerous immigration topics based on different sound clips that we will be playing throughout the podcast and news items that we have brought to discuss. I hope you enjoy it. This is a bill put forward by a member of parliament who is himself an immigrant, Devinder Shori. This is not the standards we expect. Immigrants, Canadians, all of us who are here expect that we would have a Mr. minimum Harper, bar that people would not, uh, people Canadian, who come here would not be guilty of trying to plan a, a terrorist Mr. attacks Harper, against this country. A Canadian the individual is a Canadian, question, is a Canadian and you devalue, you devalue the citizenship of every Canadian uh, in this place and in this country when you break down and make it conditional for anyone. The we have the rule of law in this country and you can't take the, away the citizenship. Let's give you life someone does. The individual you question. Can't do that. that was uh, from a debate between former Prime Minister Harper and Justin Trudeau and that was the big a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian line. Deanna, I know you were, as the former head of the CBA National, very involved in advocating on behalf of lawyers everywhere both, um, on immigration policies. Have you noticed a difference between this government and the uh, previous one? And how do you think that clip reflects the change in approach uh, by the government of Canada towards citizenship matters especially? I think that my experience has been one of... Uh I kind of feel like there's been a rebrand, um, a pretty wholesale rebrand, and that was something that was anticipated prior to the election. But I think pretty soon after the election, uh, we started seeing that uh, roll out. Um, and it happened not just in terms of like very specific changes in terms of like specific laws, but just even in terms of the environment, um, the feeling in Ottawa changed pretty remarkably over um, the last several years. And I think that um, I wasn't expecting for that feeling of a rollback to happen quite so immediately. That's sort of my takeaway from it. I don't know what your thoughts were on the revocation of citizenship um, for people convicted of certain acts. But I think you know what our thoughts were. <laughs> let's, let's, let's hear them. I know, I know Peter Edelman wanted everyone gone as soon as possible. Exactly. That's my general view. Uh, <laughs> No, but I, I have to say that the... it was got an open door here. <laughs> exactly. No, but one of the big changes for me, like I've, I've noted, because in my practice over the past 10 years, the bulk of my practice has been under the Harper government. And most of the media work that I did and the appearances that I would do in committee in Ottawa and, and elsewhere were always in terms of what do you think of the government policy it was always pretty clear. I had a very clear views on the government policies. It was they were they were problematic. It was always a question of uh, essentially making Canada into a gated community. The idea that you would have people on the inside who were safe and who were good and who were uh, upstanding and and you know and then the people on the outside were all the bad people and all the evil people and all the all the pe- everything that was wrong would be on the outside of our borders and that somehow you'd have this membrane around the country that would keep all of those people out and the one flaw in that whole conception uh, was citizenship because you had bad citizens and so this was the 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 door to opening up the idea that you could get rid of the bad elements and you'd have a list of things that would make it bad for bad people Um, and then because uh, which was the in, in some ways, a bit of an odd uh, respect for international law was to say, but we're not going to render people stateless, which meant that you could only strip citizenship from dual citizens. So people like me who, uh, you know, I have Swiss, my, my parents are Swiss, so I have Swiss citizenship. Um, even though I was born here, my kids were born here, I was going to be subject to these provisions. In other words, I could lose my citizenship, but somebody who didn't have dual citizenship, regardless of how heinous the crimes they might commit would be, couldn't lose their citizenship. And so there, there were deep flaws. And you see these throughout for me when you're, when you're dealing with immigration issues is that the entire idea of the nation state, especially Canadian nation state is built on a fiction. 
it's built, the whole thing was built on a fiction from the beginning where you had this empty land that we took over because some king in England wrote a proclamation that said that this belonged to somebody. And the fiction kind of continues on from there where the, the entire project is built on this kind of fiction. But these flaws and, and the, the problems and the struggles that you see within, in particular, the hardcore conservative ideology is that it, and they started to break apart when you started to try to apply it in what was and turned out to be an extreme way, because a lot of people who considered themselves members of the Canadian community were all of a sudden and core members. So people who were born and raised here, all of a sudden you were saying to them, you can be kicked out. Well, and especially the way like I think with Bill C-24, the government had tried to stress that it was dual citizens who were subject to it only without making it, and I don't know if they realized or if uh, the people who are making those statements realized or not, that the law was, as you said, it would affect anyone who otherwise wouldn't be stateless. And there was a whole debate within the Jewish community about whether any Jew who could theoretically go make Aliyah in Israel would be impacted. Had the law been written differently, and if it said, say, okay, for dual citizens, we aren't going to strip you of your citizenship, but you have to choose now whether you're going to be a Canadian or Swiss, would you have viewed it differently? Well, the, the question is, is do you, does everybody have to choose? Do you recognize dual citizenship or don't you? And one of the fundamental um, uh, tenets of this idea of having a multicultural or a multi is that we, keep, we maintain connections to other identities. Yeah. And in fact, this idea that, that we have this out there and the in here is an illusion. Because my, all of my neighbors have connections to other parts of the world. They have family, they have cousins, they have uh, uncles and aunts. And if they didn't directly come from there, somebody in their family came from elsewhere. I think that's the reality for a lot of Canadians. Mm -hmm. And whether or not it's, it's individual Canadians, our friends, our, our community members all have connections to other places. And I think that with globalized, with in in the world today, that's going to be more and more the reality, as For opposed sure. to less and less the reality. For sure. Well, I mean, when I was talking about the rebrand, I'm talking talking about sort of like going back to the philosophical underpinnings of what what it means to be Canadian, and I sort of feel like that's the culture shift that I was observing over the tenure of my kind of working my way through the CBA ranks. There was that like. Quite dramatically, there was a shift to what I felt was like the othering kind of function of immigration. And I just felt like that was sort of like ramping up throughout this, uh, the, the way that policy was changing, you know, in terms of even just the badness of temporary foreign workers, that all of a sudden this was like some sin that one had committed by resorting to this. And again, just the disconnect between that and just like living in a global world where people, like the whole notion of permanence, again, is becoming a bit of a fiction as well. So it's sort of like, that's what I'm sort of talking about, about this sort of like um, looking at things more from that sort of like first principles perspective. Like we need to evolve this notion of what it means to be Canadian and not just the like citizenry in terms of like, do you hold a passport or do you not hold a passport? But the whole notion of like um, integration and belonging in the sense of like citizenship and the kind of like, you know, broader definition, um, what that means. Yeah, and I think um, actually that segues nicely into our second clip they're not going to build their plant there. They're going to build it in the United States. But there is a North American free trade agreement. And there shouldn't be. It's a disaster. But it is okay. there. Yes, if you're president, you're going to have to me, live with it. We will either renegotiate it or we will break it. Because, you know, every agreement has an end. You can't just break the law. Excuse me. Every agreement has an end. Every agreement has to be fair. Every agreement has a defraud clause. We're being defrauded by all these countries. It's called free trade. No, it's not. And it's not it is free. a plank of the Republican platform. Scott, we need fair trade not free trade we need fair trade. it's got to be fair there's currently a rebranding in canada of what it means to be a citizen do we see canada right now as bucking a global trend towards increased protectionism how long can that trend last if it is indeed a trend if you agree that canada seems to be taking a different step uh, from europe and the united states I'm not sure what will happen if Hillary Clinton does become president or if there, I mean, there was enough candidates and pressure from all sides that I think it can be assumed that there will be at least a slight step towards more protectionism. Does our trend 
it's interesting because there's like almost a clash where everybody wants to be a global citizen. Yet there's also this huge element that does want to keep out the other, that does want to protect jobs, that in this city uh, will rail against the co- the impact on uh, housing. local housing of foreign, uh, or not even foreign here in the here, it's primarily immigrant investor money reflecting that flow of people. So I guess, do you think that Canada is A, bucking a trend or, and if it is, can this trend continue or will we also despite our current rebranding, can Canada, will Canada continue down a path of increased increased openness or will we uh, flow with the rest of the world if you do agree with Maya's thoughts on where the world seems to be heading in terms of protectionism and borders closing? Uh, I can tell you what my hope is, <laughs> um, which is that I'm hoping we're just kind of ahead of the curve um, and, uh, you know, I'm sort of um, jumping the gun here. But in terms of the, 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 the topic that I wanted to bring up later on the podcast was this idea of kind of like a common sense look um, at where we wish to be and why we wish to be there. And I feel like... Um, there's been already a fair bit of consistency and in a way where um, the kind of points, the win points that um, that I see as a practitioner in terms of like the successes of this government so far, they're not things that are going to play super well in the media. They're not they're not popularity games. There's no sort of incentive in a way to uh, to be following through with this, because I think that they're hard. They're hard wins, in fact, in terms of like. Um, how the public is going to perceive this. And for that, I'm speaking of the, you know, the, the, the resettlement of refugees. I'm speaking of, um, um, you know, the, the, the citizenship bill, um, um, where, you know, it's not something that, that is going to be pulled, is going to be played out with a whole bunch of fanfare and a big sort of like pat on your own back, um, that I think is going to be supported by the, the public generally. So, um, so. Do you worry, though, that if we go too far against, or not we, if the government policy goes too far against the public, that there will be a backlash similar to what happened in the UK? If we assume that a lot of that was based especially on immigration and not economics. I think that that's why I'm optimistic about this kind of like returning to this first principles kind of a conversation, because I think as long as that's the way that the discussion continues to go, I'm not super worried about it, about it going too far. Um, the other thing is that when we were in discussions, even with the, the, the policymakers and the diplomats with uh, over the past years, there was a pretty, there was a growing consensus, in my view, that the pendulum had just swung way too far in the other direction. And I feel like we've got a long way to go before we've even hit center. So (laughs) I'm not super worried about uh, going, uh, swinging too far. That's my view anyways. I mean, I think that in in Canada, we've, we saw an attempt by the the Conservative Party um, at the time of the last election to go very much in that down that road, and we saw the the, the support or the base of support um, for those types of politics was probably at similar levels as in the United States. So when we say that we're that different from the United States, um, I'm not that convinced that when you know you look at the niqab debate and the barbaric cultural practices and the a lot of the kind of and it was done more subtly slightly more subtly in uh, in Canada I mean Donald Trump is is even extreme by Republican standards and, and I think even the Republican Party which is not um, in within the mainstream range in Canada at the best of times um, even for the Republican Party their presumptive nominee has gone quite far over the line hmm. um, what's he doing in the polls right now do you know the latest or that's just depressing. <laughs> uh, this week is bad for. Uh, and, and I mean, the problem is that you have a very unpopular Democrat, not Democratic nominee. You have deeply unpopular yeah. nominees on both sides. But if you look at the the um, uh, the UKIP vote in the United in the United Kingdom, is that there's no illusion that UKIP is going to have a majority in the government, or that UKIP is somehow going to to be a revived is is going to be naming the next prime minister, and and nobody's discussing that. And in fact, when you look at Farage's resignation, no leader, yeah. Well, his resignation is because there's nowhere for him to go. He's he's achieved everything that he can in that fringe of politics, and so there there is no uh, there is no path to the prime ministers or, or to Downing Street for someone like Farage, even in the UK. And so when you you look at the situation here, is there a pass to the White House for Trump? Um, I, I think it's a it's a very 
uh, it's, it's a very complicated question. And I think there is, you know, there's probabilities that it could happen. For but, the talk of free trade, like, do you think it matter? Do you see NAFTA? Do you see either of them, even if they win, actually reopening NAFTA? I think it's very difficult to have policy discussions about things that are said by the presumptive Republican nominee in the United States, yeah. because there is no coherent policy message there to analyze. It's there is no there's no coherence to the policy. There's no coherence to the to the underlying ideology. It's a very difficult thing to analyze in terms of saying what would he do. Who knows what he'll even say next week, right? So to say that he's going to, is there going to be a Muslim ban? How would you implement that? The, the practicalities of it are not the point. The point is the is the message. It's entertain to a certain extent. It's you can treat it as entertainment, but it's more of the 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 point of it is the feeling behind the message not the actual implementation of the policy in in terms of what the the overall tone and situation in the United States is is going to to become i mean even this week i mean trying to analyze what's going to happen after Dallas is is another again you're talking about deep tensions that are fundamentally different yeah. than in Canada or even in the UK um, the the racial politics of the United States have as much to do with the history of slavery and occupation of uh, of Mexican or, or the the relationship between blacks, Latinos, and whites in the United States is fundamentally different than dealing with immigrant populations in other parts of the world. It's fundamentally different, but okay. So let's just get a specific example, like the uh, the Trans Pacific Partnership, which is a broad free trade agreement between numerous countries. Canada's one of them, Mexico, Japan, Australia. They've, in their foreign worker, in the temporary entry of business persons provisions, the United States, it greatly broadens what would be encompassed by NAFTA. It'll introduce or allow a wider range of foreign workers to come work in Canada without needing a labor market impact assessment. The United States is, like I think, the only country that hasn't signed on to that part of the treaty, which is going to lead to this kind of bizarre notion that it will be the free trade agreements between Canada and Australia, Europe, if that goes through, Chile are going to be broader than the United States. As far as the U.S. election goes, do you see either candidate signing on to the foreign worker provisions of the TPP, or will it be harder for most American workers to come work in Canada than Peruvians? But I think that that's, that's already started happening, even under the Democrats. Like, I think that, the in a way, the, the NAFTA is a bit of a standout now as compared to other U.S. bilateral agreements where they're kind of like, uh, I think that that's why there hasn't been any uh, reopening of NAFTA was that they're not giving that away in the context of any other bilateral agreement at this stage. So, and that's been the case even, even previously. So whether or not... Uh, you know, that's why it doesn't entirely surprise me to hear um, Trump saying that, that this is he wants this to be a further rollback, that like that's just not where they're wishing to go. It's not about reciprocity for them. I, yeah. I mean, I think that one of the one of the risks with respect to Canada and in NAFTA in particular and the impact on immigration would be huge. But ultimately, if there is a motivation for Trump to reopen NAFTA, it's not in relation to Canada. And unfortunately, it's a trilateral. Unfortunately for Canada, it's a trilateral agreement. And the other party would be the main motivator for a Trump presidency to try to reopen it. Hmm. Um, and so I think that in that sense, it probably is precarious. That being said, it's very likely that some kind of bilateral agreement with Canada would would replace it or portions of it would be kept with respect to uh, with respect to Canada, because I think there's a bit of a different relationship there. He's addicted to this silly conservative line about cleaning up a liberal mess, which did not exist in those days. If we want to be more serious, this guy talks about employers on the list. There are zero employers on any list for abuse of employees. So I would ask this minister, or if he doesn't know, I'll ask the real minister, can he name one employer on either list on the list for abusing employee rights? Can either of the ministers answer that question? The Honorable Minister of Immigration.
immigration. Mr. Speaker, the member opposite knows perfectly well that there are employers on the list who do not have access to the program. He knows that there are further investigations underway, and he also knows that there was no list in their time in government, Mr. Speaker, because they were indifferent to abuse. They brought exotic dancers to this country in their hundreds and thousands without any scrutiny of what happened to them. Mr. Speaker, it was atrocious, and we're going to continue cleaning up that mess. And McCollum in that clip had uh, jokingly, when he was talking to Chris Alexander, said if, the, if Chris Alexander or the real, the real immigration minister. minister. Right. And, in, and then under the Conservatives, there was definitely one minister in charge of the different... There was, at least it seemed like there was one minister in charge of the different ministries. I think McCollum's made clear on numerous occasions, including at CBA at the uh, conference, mm-hmm. that they are going to operate the silos. Uh, IRCC, it doesn't seem, will be dictating what uh, CBSA or... Uh, I always forget the new acronym, but ESDC, the department. E-W-D- oh, yeah. WDL. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or Canoodle. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that again, like I you know, I, I think that this is a totally this is a watch this face kind of a thing because uh, you know, I think that those are the silos that were there. Those were the silos that were created before this government was, was appointed. And I think that, you know, some of the discussion about well what what portion of this kind of like just for example the temporary foreign worker program, how much of that is going to get kind of like what I would call repatriated back to the to the immigration department, because really, um, you know, and even just in terms of the talk about CBSA versus um, IRCC, you know, this whole idea, of, like, this is the same period of time that, you know, um, border guards were uh, armed with tasers and, you know, that they stopped being plainclothes people and becoming, you know, flak jacket wearing officers that you meet behind immigration security at an airport you know that uh so i think that this whole idea of like how was this going to come together because if we're talking about the kind of messaging behind that sense of citizenry and belonging and what is the notion of what it means to be canadian i think that there is conversation at the highest levels that like right now it's a pretty mixed message (laughs) and so i I don't think anybody's quite uh, at the point of being able to say how that's going to play out and reconcile well, I think there's two on, on the foreign worker front. I think that there's there's in fact two different issues with respect to enforcement. And when you're talking about enforcement, on the one hand, you're talking about enforcement of protecting the rights of the foreign workers, right? And the which is it appeared to be what McCallum was was going after in terms of the blacklisting and who was being blacklisted. Um, and the other side of it, which is the protection of Canadian workers from foreign competition, For sure. which are, are two very different sets of concerns um, and that often have been a tension within uh, have been a tension within the, the immigration system. And well, always especially happy, because right? the consequence Where, to a foreign worker, and I think Deanna's going to touch on this, the consequence of a foreign worker who is abused tends to be that they're removed. <laughs> Which uh, is Thanks just historically, like, you know, <laughs> we're protecting you, you're on a plane back home, which yeah. may or, you know, which we're often sending you isn't. Home for your own good. Yeah, um, I mean, we've been doing that since since we brought the Chinese in to build the railways. I mean, sure. it's not, that's this isn't a new thing. If you complain back in the day, you would get shipped back, you would get shipped back. And, and that was, so in, in the sense that, you know, you say, is this a new problem? Well, it's not a new problem. It's, it's a, a problem that's always going to be part of this idea that there's, an us and a them and that you're going to limit the numbers of people here and that the people who are on the inside have a right to a certain level of privilege. And that's what you see the reaction against uh, what we were talking about earlier, but also within Canada that you have this idea that you need to protect the the wage levels and everything like that. But when you've got nine and a half billion people on the outside, so to speak. Is that where we're at right now? Well, or whatever it is, nine, or maybe not nine and a half. I guess in in if you look no, over the next, but if you look over the next uh, over the next fifty years, we're probably going to top out at around ten billion, right? Is is it the? Yeah, I've seen that, and there's and I mean, we're also talking about Canada, you know, a highly highly densely populated country here. That's you know, we're at the bursting seams. I mean, I can't get to like you know, once you're on that highway one to Kelowna, it's just red light after red light after red light due to all the skyscrapers. We're packed. Um, but I mean, and I mean, I'm being obviously I'm joking, but like the, 
it, it is something to me how, and I always come back to when I'm thinking about, you know, as we get into three-year processing for whether or not a live-in caregiver can stay or not after having worked here for two years. And you're like, look at the size of this country. Yeah. Like... You said three-year processing, so more like six or eight. I shudder to, <laughs> I shudder to think. I sure I have heard loud and clear that Atlantic Canada wants more immigrants. I am very pleased to announce a three-year pilot project for uh, immigrants for Atlantic Canada. It is a federal pilot program and in the first year we are committing to uh, 2,000 uh, immigrants, immigrant applicants, so it'll be immigrants plus their families, so it could be a total something like 4,000 people and that number is scheduled to rise in coming years by amounts depending how how well we do but just all right so my uh my object lesson or my uh, my item for today was uh a a recent um announcement or or uh i guess a survey by immigration of uh consultations with respect to uh canadians views on immigration the future of immigration um, and this is not uh, completely out of the ordinary in the sense of the consultations on the levels plans have always been part of, you know, the governments over the past years have always consulted on the levels plans. The levels have always, for the last, you know, as long as I can remember, have been in the 250 to 300,000 permanent residents per year range. Uh, they went up slightly over the past few years, but in terms of levels related to the population, we're probably around there. Um, one of the realities, and I think one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up, one is it's a very detailed, you know, there's a very detailed set of questions as to, you know, how many newcomers should we welcome into Canada? How should we best support them? What's the, what's the right balance in the immigration streams? Should there be more programs for businesses? Uh, should we bring in, glo you know, global talent? All of those kinds of things. I, I think that's just a detailed way of talking about the levels. And the, the levels have always been, uh, one of the fundamental aspects of the Canadian immigration system and, and one of the things that you, everything else flows from the levels in the sense that as soon as you set a limit, as soon as you set a, a level and say we're only allowing 300,000 people, and which is the current level around 300,000, only 300,000 people are going to get permanent residence. I think it's important just to quickly interject that exactly and a lot of people don't understand when processing times are really high mm. it's often not a resources thing it's because oh, no. the levels are dictated uh centrally and processing times reflect these levels yeah i mean to quote actually what we would get when we were complaining about this from cba the actual quote we were uh commended to bring back to our membership was we are processing to the levels plan mm -hmm. <laughs> it was the party line it was like well, and the reality is if you want to bring in 300,000, if you only want to bring in 300,000 permanent residents and you want to bring in 25,000 additional Syrian refugees, that 25,000 number has to come from somewhere. So either you have to take it from another piece of the pie or the pie gets bigger. And this year we saw an increase of 25,000 to, to accommodate that. So, you know, the last year's levels were about 20,000 lower than they were uh, the, the projected ones for this year. But it, it has a significant impact in terms of the, all of the other discussions that we have around immigration. It means that if you're only going to have 300,000 people who have permanent status in Canada, that other people are going to have temporary status or they're going to have no status at all. Mm -hmm. And those people need to be are, are going to be removed or are going to be excluded in some way. Um, even if you doubled the levels to 600,000, right? It would be a drop in the bucket in terms of demand. You would easily fill 600,000 requests for permanent residence in Canada. Six, you could probably get 600 million requests, sure. right? And so when you talk about a levels plan of 300,000, it's a tiny amount, right, in, in, in terms of the demand. Um, and it, a lot flows from it. So I think it's an interesting discussion and it's always been a challenge for me in terms of engaging that discussion when you say, well, we should speed up the processing of spouses. Well, where are you going to take it from? And that's always the next question. You want to bring in more refugees. You want to bring in more workers. You want to bring in more caregivers. Well, the caregivers should get permanent residence when they first get here. 
well, okay, so which, who else get, we, do we bring in less of these other people? Mm-hmm. Which other people do we bring in less of? Um, has always been a very challenging discussion for me to engage in. And so I thought that's what I wanted to raise and, sure. and bring it up and see what your thoughts were. That's a difficult question because it fundamentally comes down to how many people do you think Canada should have? Or should it matter is what one person thinks a country should have and should it just be organic? How many skyscrapers you wish to pass on your road? To How many market? skyscrapers? And it's also unique because it seems like in Canada, more so than, say, uh, the United States, settlement tends to occur primarily in the few large urban cities that we have. And it doesn't tend to migrate, although there are those provincial nominee programs that are trying for this, to spread people out. Um, yeah. I don't actually... As you said, it's difficult to engage. It'll be difficult to engage me on that. I don't actually. I don't know how many people I think Canada should mm. have. I think that if you tried to increase it too much, there would be an unbelievable backlash. But you also have the current system where there is no cap on the number of foreign workers, but there's a cap on the number of foreign workers that can become permanent residents. So now you have this scenario that's arguably the worst of both worlds, where mm. we invite people here temporarily, but then we make it incre- incredibly difficult for them to stay. And if there's one thing that I could beg Minister McCallum to do, it's do something to increase economic immigration, which was cut this year. And I think it's being reflected in how high the threshold for express entry points is, or get rid of these caps on foreign on how long foreign workers can stay here. So that at least people have the option to continue if we are going to cap permanent immigration. It has to somehow align with the number of temporary people in Canada so that you don't have someone come here, establish a life here, For and sure. then arbitrarily be told they have to leave. It is like the franchise on disenfranchisement, you know? And this is, I mean, this is something that we've seen if we're talking about global trends, like ac- across Europe, this whole, like, you know, temporary underclass and all this kind of thing. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I agree entirely. I, I think when I first started this, well, when I first started practicing as an immigration lawyer, I remember one of the first conferences I ever went to, and one of the discussions was about managing the mix. And really, this is a conversation about the levels plan, too. And it occurred to me all of a sudden how incredibly naive I had been, because this was sort of like, it was so overt that we were talking about like a social engineering kind of an, an exercise. And... Uh, But I think to kind of tie this back to the kind of like overarching theme of our discussion today was this kind of the idea, like, I know that I agree with you that there's there's always at some level being discussions about the levels plan and all of this sort of thing. But this idea um, of this ask, like sending out to people, what are your views on what it should mean to be Canadian? That's kind of what the what the thrust of this is. And it's definitely not a super warm love and kisses uh, officer with a name this is a like from Canada you've got a thousand words you've got specific questions to answer you've got like two weeks to think about this and put it into their web form or whatever it is um, but again I still think it's different in the sense of there being this ideal this idea of a national identity debate that this is part of a public conversation about like hey Canada what do you think we want the immigration system to look like what do you want its purposes to be you know and sort of like Again, that purposive conversation so that if it is going to be a social engineering enterprise, which I agree with you, Steve, it is, um, that at least it's one that's supposed to be at the level of the, 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 the public, you know, so. Yeah. Well, I think in, in part because the, the, the tools for selection have changed significantly. And I think one of the things that we see with express entry, and I know you want to talk about express entry later, but the, uh, is that the granular level upon which you can select who it is that you want. And by selecting, you can control which countries they're coming from, what their profiles look like, just by moving the CRS points around. So this is the, the comprehensive ranking points. You've got 600 points to work with. And you can adjust for everything from age to language level to education to everything else. Well, you know how that's going to play out in terms of the pool of candidates that you have. So you know that if you up education and bring English down, the profile of the countries of who's coming in, the gender profiles, all of the other profiles shift as you drop education and bring up English or as you drop age and and bring up, you know, some other or add something else into the into the comprehensive ranking system. Age and is a so, massive one, though. Like I think oh, we forget how huge. profound the impact is oh, of that one. A it, couple points here and there, you know, like uh, 
you know, by 47 years old, you're over the hill and, uh, you know, you've got to be, uh, you know, yeah. a superstar in every other. And yet. Well, it also makes a huge difference in terms of the profiles in certain 100%. countries, right? Well, like right. certain countries have much, uh, much yeah. older populations than others. Yeah. Um, oh, what determines it also is whether you, I mean, what does determine it for most people is whether you can find an employer willing to go through the rigmarole for either provincial nomination, at least in BC where it's employer driven or, um, labor market impact assessment. So we also have this shift where by doing that, and I think Catherine Devon has talked about this, the responsibility for selecting immigrants almost shifts from the government to the private sector. And the employers have, you know, in addition to filling labor needs, have their own, and I think we're seeing this with the increased compliance regime, ulterior motives for often going through that, uh, that process. And I know in BC, there's been an increased focus. I think you've talked about it before on employers who are getting paid for positions. But this all stems from the fact that we have transferred the selection of immigrants to the uh, private sector. But when you open with this topic, I'm just curious, do you have a number that you think it should be set at or do you think it should be organic? No, I've, well, I've always found it to be a very challenging number because I have it, it comes down to my general views about the nation state being over... Uh, I, I, I have very little belief in the nation state as an organizing structure to start with. And so as soon as you, this is really where the rubber hits the road for me when I show up in front of a committee or I, I end up in consultations is that once you start with the assumption that there's a level, everything else flows from there. All of the de- the deportations, the enforcement, right. the the uh, the the, yeah. the the different categories, everything flows from the idea that human beings don't have a right to move around the That's world, right. <laughs> and it's a pretty fundamental, uh, um, but a, a, a fundamental assumption that you start with, from which everything else flows. Yeah. And then it's it's a question of just saying, what is the level? It doesn't really matter because the problems, the fundamental problems with the levels arise at the 300,000 mark. They arise at the 500,000 mark. They arise at the million mark. It doesn't really matter when you're talking about a country the size of Canada in a global, uh, on a global yeah. scale. It's, it's interesting because the libertarian like philosophy would say that, well, Open borders would be great, but for the fact that we have had all these social services programs, so governments need to plan. Yet in Canada, because we don't plan for temporary foreign workers, all of whom receive services, Mm. we're in this weird, it's just this weird little situation where we don't actually control how many people come in and receive services. We sort of do, but not through levels numbers in the foreign worker program. Yet for a permanent, at the permanent level, that's where we say, okay, to transition from temporary to foreign, this is where we need a specific number pre-planned, even though you're already here. Well, I, I mean, I think the, the, the big difference as well, uh, and, and one of the reasons why there's a lot of focus on permanent residence, is that it is the pathway to citizenship. In other words, there is no pathway to citizenship from temporary residence. Um, the, and so when you're talking about permanent, not only the permanent integration, but the permanent integration of the dependents and the children and the and the family, so you you have additional permanent members of the community. Um, I mean, the other extreme you see in places like Qatar, right? Where in and all of us have dealt with clients from Qatar. I mean, I have a number, especially we're dealing with a lot of Syrians these days who have lived in in uh, in Dubai or Qatar or Abu Dhabi and d- different places in yeah. the, in the uh, around the Gulf states their entire lives. So you know they were born there. Their parents have been working there for 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. They have businesses there. They, they are, for all intents and purposes, Qatari. But there's no, nobody gets status. And there is no path to integration. And there's no illusion that that's going to happen within some of the... And so the, you see that other extreme. I say family reunification is the key thing. And we now have families who have been applying to come here to bring their mother over to Canada, sometimes waiting 10, 12, 13 years. And they, they, they are unable to come here. My little item that I'm bringing is actually a case from February. And it is a bit of a game changer in terms of how 117.1H is viewed. And so 117.1H is the provision that says that Canadian permanent residents or citizens can sponsor any relative as long as they don't have a relative who is Canadian or who is sponsorable. 
Um, so for example, if you're, if you're in Canada, let's say you immigrated a while ago, all of your family is back in the Philippines, you don't have a husband or kids, and uh, your parents are deceased or you can't sponsor your parents, then you could sponsor your aunt or your uncle. Traditionally, the department viewed this program being as being very narrow, and you actually had to show that you didn't have a living parent. And what this case was, uh, and the case is Sendwa, uh, S-E-N-D-W-A-V, Canada, Citizenship and Immigration, 2016, FC 216. And in this case, the Canadian said that she could not sponsor her parents because she didn't meet the low-income requirement that's required in the parent and grandparent sponsorship program, and therefore she wanted to sponsor a different relative. Even though her parents were alive, she couldn't sponsor them because she didn't meet the requirements of the act to sponsor them. Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada said no. And the federal court quashed that and said that a plain reading of the uh, act would say that, and I'll read the paragraph, normally applications cannot be made pursuant to paragraph 117.1h when the possibility of sponsoring parents is otherwise available inasmuch as the applicant could normally sponsor her mother pursuant to the parent and grandparent sponsorship program, this would make her ineligible to sponsor her mother. If the situation was entirely different, then she would be able to do this. Thing. Yeah, if, if the, and it also applies where the mother is inadmissible uh, to Canada, say for medical reasons, they can no longer, assuming that Sendwa gets really taken up um, and isn't distinguished elsewhere, for the time being, the law as articulated by the federal court is that it would be going to standard of review unreasonable for an officer to say that ERPR 117.1H requires that there be no living sponsorable people as to no people who are simply sponsorable. And so everything I do on this front will be designed to facilitate that process, to make us a more attractive destination for these skilled and sometimes less skilled immigrants that our country needs so much. And so some of the systems in place are less than useful to achieve those ends. You know, I was, uh, you know, reading this article about um, Minister McCallum talking about um, wanting to streamline, and this was in the context of his kind of like immigration roadshow that brought him to Atlantic Canada, and he's talking about how, uh, you know, he wants to streamline the process and get rid of silliness in the immigration rules. And I, I have to say it was a massive breath of fresh air to hear somebody at that level talk about silliness because that's sort of what I feel my, my practice has become relegated to having these conversations where I kind of feel like I'm wearing a tutu and dancing <laughs> on top of my desk to try and make sense of what I'm trying to explain to somebody as what the rules are and why they're there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I made a list for for Steve and for for Peter of like my favorite topics of silliness, and uh, <laughs> that's a good list. You should like uh, <laughs> give uh, me a chuckle. Well, we did talk about one of them, the protection of foreign workers one. We kind of got there. The like, I'm going to deport you for your own protection, um, you know. And I, I, I mean, one of my big hangups on this one was, um, you know, the 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 way that it was working with caregivers, and you know that like uh, you know back in the '80s when they had the whole good enough to work, good enough to stay. Uh, a campaign and you know right that changed policy and now I feel like we're kind of right back out there the very day you qualify for permanent residence is the day your work permit expires and unless your uh, employer can show that there's no Canadian who can meet then you know no you're not allowed to put skills in the in the job ad anyway so it's sort of like a, um, it creates this kind of absurdity in that and and I, I, you know one of the other the earlier kind of incarnations of this for me was one day um, they issued, they they created the policy around the TRP for victims of human trafficking, which was to me kind of like such a song and dance because like it's just a TRP. You can call it a VTIP TRP. It's just a bad TRP because rather than making the argument that you know I need a year to kind of recover from some terrible abuse in Canada of you know being victimized, that now because I'm a victim of human trafficking. First of all, I'm volunteering to be testifying in a case against my <laughs> my abuser, and probably I can make a case for three months, you know, and then I have to keep kind of going back to the like, why do I need more time for that and all this sort of thing. So you've got a stream of, a string of DUIs, you can make your case for a two year TRP, but the expectation when it's a human trafficking case that you need 
uh, in practice, a lot of the time you need CBSA uh, and the RCMP on board to actually prosecute that person so that they have a benefit to, to allowing you to stay. And then you're going to get this kind of uh, short shift TRP um, with what I think is a much more meritorious type of situation in a lot of cases. Another one that was sort of like a big uh, um, thing for me was uh, the conditional permanent residence on sponsored spouses and how you know you're landed conditionally if your relationship is less than two years old, and then at the time of, uh, of application, uh, even if by the time you're landed, you've been in this relationship for uh, four years. Um, but then there is an exception for victims of abuse and violence. And so the remedy for you is that when you're in a situation and you're trying to contemplate, can I leave this abusive sponsor? The, the remedy put forth is that you call the immigration call center and say, hey, I'm facing this violence, you know, and then you kind of put yourself into the enforcement stream so that they can make a determination as to whether or not you are genuinely a victim of violence. Um, again, the sort of like uh, the thinking that went into that, um, I think it was just perplexing. <laughs> well, and that the, the idea is, is that you also, you should remain in the relationship until it becomes truly abusive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that you can prove that it was abusive. Totally. So wait until he actually starts to physically assault you so you For can sure. call the police and get out of the relationship with your permanent residence intact. Not to mention the fact that really what we're talking about is what we're talking about the power dynamics of the spousal sponsorship you know, program in the first place. And what you've essentially done is provided this powerful weapon to the hands of the abuser where they call and say, she left. And then the case needs to be made uh, in a backward-looking kind of way that, you know, you need to sort of substantiate. And, I mean, this is not even mentioning the fact that, like, a genuine marriage breakdown within that two-year period means that you deserve to now also, in addition to leaving your marriage, you have to go back to where you came from, essentially. For me, the biggest surprise with respect to that, not is that one is that the, the the government was clear. At least when when Minister McCallum was here, he was clear he was going to get rid of it. My big surprise with that was that even though the minister is highly motivated to have this done right now, and there's a very clear amendment to be made to change the regulations, is going to take eighteen months or something mm -hmm. ridiculous he like said that. that. And I don't understand why that is because there's Neither regulations getting changed all the time. And I guess I mean he said yeah. To change a law is easy. You just change the law. You still got to go through parliament and committee for that. To increase processing times, that's resources. I don't understand why it takes so long to change a reg. I, I thought they just published that in the Gazette. Mm. Isn't that just removing the line about conditional permanent residence? Like, that's what I thought, but I... But could there not also be like some program directive in the interim too? And yeah, it was really weird in terms of like people coming in saying, or where marriage just genuinely breaks down but somebody's been here a long time and they actually could have immigrated through an economic program. They, they chose the family class and you have these weird questions of like, so like it gives power to the sponsor. It also could put the sponsor in a horrible position of like, well, I'd like to get out of the relationship. I don't want them to get deported. They haven't done anything wrong besides a marriage breakdown, uh, which isn't even something wrong. Uh, so I agree, definitely, definitely silly and hopefully they get rid of it faster. Yeah. Uh, Express Entry is its own little, like, that's the that's the real song of dance. That's the one that uh, you're kind of uh, jumping through hoops to try and explain it. Uh, you know, I wrote it my whole kind of like, how you try to explain to somebody who's come into Canada on a significant benefit work permit with this specific, like, the idea that the company was deemed not to need to go through the mechanics of advertising because of the high level and the, 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 the clear significant benefit that they were going to bring, you know, economic and culturally. And... And then the sort of like, if they're then going into express entry, from start to finish, they are going to be, especially if they need a provincial nomination in order to, to get the invitation to apply for permanent residence, trying to explain that they are going to be ranked three separate times on three separate systems based on almost the exact same factors, and that they need to basically go in to express their interest, to be invited, to make an application, to be approved for that application, only so that that enables them to seek an invitation in another system. It's it's actually impossible to for me to, with a straight face, explain to somebody. Uh, and these often are most impactful on people at the very very highest level of the kind of employment kind of pyramid, where you know they're responsible for 
hundreds of jobs and all of the people at the sort of lower uh, levels within their organization are going to be able to kind of cruise through this system just because of those um, those peculiarities of the way that the system works. Yeah, I actually like Expressent. No, I like the idea of Expressent. I understand the need for an application intake management system. I don't understand why Canadian Experience class wasn't looped out of it. Like I could see Express Entry as being a way to manage the Federal Skilled Worker Program and selecting we can't design something through the regs that would be restrictive enough or reflexive enough. So for people who are outside Canada looking to immigrate, something restrictive. Although again, like the job bank for people who have jobs in Canada and they have to register, but they don't actually have to create a whole profile and all the little quirks along the way. Um, but I think the, the idea of the application intake management system is good. I just don't know why Canadian experience class was brought in under it once you've... And this again, though, goes to my whole like frustration with the idea that People can come here as temporary foreign workers and have to go through crazy hoops to stay here in the context also of a cap on how long they can be a foreign worker. Canadian immigration selection happens kind of like lava life. People get that. And so if I can keep this analogy going, then Except I... Except nobody creates a full profile. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's... Nobody who knows what they're doing creates a whole profile. Yeah. If you are sort of walking into it and not understanding anything, you'll create an entire profile and then that will cause your application likely to be refused at some point. <laughs> On uh, before you do the rest of your silly points, to me the biggest common sense reform that John McCallum has done, and it may seem minor, but getting rid of the option C requirement in family class applications, I could never understand why you couldn't just print your notice of assessment or photocopy your original, and you instead had to call the Canada Revenue Agency and get the exact same data in a slightly different mm. form. Well, how about the one about when, uh, this wasn't on my list, but it should be, was when you are doing a spousal sponsorship and there's a Canadian, like a child who is Canadian, like a naturalized Canadian or Canadian by uh, birth abroad to a Canadian citizen or something, and you need to apply, like if you apply just for the spousal sponsorship without including forms for that Canadian child, they'll bounce it as incomplete until you can provide them a citizenship certificate. So you have to make an application for a citizenship certificate in order to be able to provide that document back to the same department to explain why you haven't provided another set of... Didn't you almost storm the headquarters in Ottawa over a refugee case that I referred you or something? What was the... Uh, didn't you like actually almost go in... Oh, I did. Oh, yes, I did. I actually went to... <laughs> I called them in Ottawa. Yeah. Well, because it was, it was just a nightmare of like ridiculous, ridiculous requirements to serve of dealing with this case of trying to get the, the travel document that I oh, eventually yes. called a manager that I had looked up. She said, how did you get my number? And I'm like, you're, you're in the G yeah, you know, in, in, in yeah. GEDS. And I was like, I found you in the GEDS. And would it be easier if I just came over there? Because I'm in Ottawa anyways. And you know, would I, no, 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 no. I'll have someone look at it. You know, and I was like, just, Oh no, I was that that was definitely one of my one of my high level irritant irritant cases of like yeah. just this ridiculous requirements. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That probably no, highlighted that, that and my and my co- are one of uh I have a, a colleague uh who was one of uh, went went to a, a Canadian law school and uh the Canadian law school provided their diploma in Latin and the citizenship right. application bounced because the diploma <laughs> had not been translated into English oh, no, or French. Oh no, we have an on-call translator who translates from Latin to English, a certified translator That's for just, sort of just for McGill, just because McGill can't bother. There, to no, there's a couple of other ones in the U.S. that are just too fancy like, for English. Yeah. Too fancy for English. Yeah. Well, that concludes our first episode. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Each episode will feature a guest as well as a discussion of recent news items, court cases, and so on regarding immigration law and policy. I hope you keep listening.